The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. A taper tantrum incoming. The Fed signaling it could begin scaling back its easy money policy before the year ends. Futures, they are down over 300. The Biden administration giving the green light for booster shots for all Americans as COVID cases now begin to soar in D.C. and the Northeast. The White House also taking new steps to try to get Americans trapped in Afghanistan out. The president suggests troops may stay past the withdrawal deadline. Robinhood facing a steep sell-off following its first earnings as a public company as it warns of fading trading activity. And your morning RBI on why relief may finally be here for all of you trying to buy a car. It is Thursday, August 19th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Good Thursday morning. Thank you very much for joining us. There is a lot going on. Let's get right now to your Thursday money, because after two days of declines, that is the Dow a hair away from going negative on the month. We are going to go negative on the month, at least if we stay where we are right now. Dow futures, they are down a full 1%. Off 351, NASDAQ futures down a little lower on a percentage basis, but still off 126 points. Now, why are we so deep in the red? Well, really, if you ask three traders, you might get three different answers as to why we have been weak a little bit this week. You've got, of course, the Fed getting a little more aggressive, a little hawkish, maybe tapering, reducing bond buying a little earlier than some had planned. You've got new COVID concerns, cases now spiking in New Jersey, New York, D.C., and the Northeast or perhaps just normal August volatility. Remember, we have not had a more than 5% drop since October of last year. John and Jerry and others will be along all through the show, talk to us more about what they see as happening right now. Now, as stock futures come down, 10-year yields, they're also moving lower. The bond market down. We're seeing yields at 1.22%. And crypto also been hit. It's been kind of a sell everything type of days lately. Pretty much everything has been sold off. Bitcoin down right now, not a lot at 44.789 and Ethereum down just over one half of 1%. Now the selling is not just limited to the United States. The world seeing broad set-offs as well, sell-offs as well, particularly in Europe. There is, look at all the red on the screen. France down nearly 3%. Let's get the live trade right now. Some of the numbers and why we're seeing so much red. Juliana Tottlebaum is in London with more. Juliana, that screen behind you kind of says it all. 
It certainly does, Brian. You talk about nearly everything getting sold this morning. That's certainly what it feels like here in Europe. There's only a patch of green, a handful of stocks that are trading higher this morning. It really is a sea of red. But I want to put this into context because you saw a steep sell-off in the U.S. yesterday. European markets, though, in contrast, actually closed higher yesterday, closing up shop before those FOMC meeting minutes came through. So it's a little bit of a catch-up trade here in Europe. The stock 600 now down more than 2%. So no doubt about it. We are seeing hefty, broad-based selling, but it is a little bit of a catch-up trade after a more resilient performance from Europe earlier this week. From a sector perspective, this is what we're seeing this morning. Every sector is trading lower, the most resilient of them all, utilities, but even that defensive sector down about half a percentage point. On the downside, we've got the more cyclical sectors bearing the brunt of the selling. Basic resources down nearly 5%, retail down 3.6%, oil and gas, household good and goods and autos. The auto sector down about 2.7%. And we got some interesting news out of Toyota and Volkswagen this morning. Toyota announcing that it's going to have to cut production by 40% in September due to a combination of the chip shortage and the COVID-19 situation. Meanwhile, Volkswagen may need to cut production, but hopes that bottlenecks will ease by year end. So that chip shortage continuing to affect auto production. Lastly, Brian, I just want to give you a look at the luxury names, which are also seeing some heavy, heavy selling this morning. Caring shares down nearly 8% on pace for its worst trading day since March 2020. We're also seeing the beloved LVMH trade about 5.3% down this morning. It's been one of the most loved stocks, not only throughout the pandemic, but for a number of years. So uh, we are seeing very heavy selling this morning here in Europe, Brian. Yeah, a lot of those luxury retailers. Look at that Burberry, LVMH, Hermes as well. They are all down big time. A lot of red on the screen. Juliana, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, no doubt, folks, that rising COVID concerns are playing a role in what is happening with stocks. And as new case growth starts to roll over in Florida and some of the formerly southern hotspots, that's good news. They are starting to pop in places like D.C., New Jersey and New York. And now the Biden administration is talking about vaccine booster shots. Bertha Coombs here now with more on that and some of the other key headlines happening right now. Bertha. You know, Brian, it's not really a surprise. People have really anticipated this, but it's moving very quickly. The Biden administration and U.S. health officials will begin widely distributing those booster shots starting the week of September 20th. Americans who have already received their first two shots of either Pfizer or Moderna vaccines will be able to get a third shot starting eight months after their second jab. Now, health officials say while Johnson & Johnson shot recipients will likely need a booster as well, they are still awaiting more data on that before making a formal decision. Currently, 60% of Americans have received at least one vaccine dose, while 51% have been fully vaccinated with both shots. Meantime, shares of Robinhood facing a steep drop, those diamond hands not so sticky after all. Following its first earnings report as a public company, the stock trading app's revenue more than doubling in the second quarter, boosted by a huge surge in crypto trading. But the company is warning of a slowdown in trading activity that could hit revenues in the current quarter. 
And a UK court says more than $14 billion class action lawsuits against MasterCard, meantime, can move forward. The decision by the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which had previously rejected the lawsuit, will allow the case to proceed to trial. That suit against MasterCard stems from a 2007 European Commission ruling that interchange fees, which are charged to retailers for card use and then often passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices, broke EU competition law. That will be an interesting settlement, Brian. It will. Not hitting the stock right now. It is up just a tick, but uh, watching MA certainly. Bertha, we'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you very much. All right, let's get back down to the markets and your money, folks, because the selling looks poised to continue as maybe the end of the Fed's easy money party, looking like it will start sooner rather than later. Let's talk more about this and why there is one sector of the market that is still looking good, at least to our next guest, Emily Hill, founding partner at Bowersock Capital Partners. Emily, good to have you on on a big day. Dow futures off 340. It's been a weak week. Is there anything on a macro level that you can point to that would suggest why we've, you know, maybe it's just August, maybe it's taper, whatever it might be. What do you think why we have seen more selling the last few days? Well, you know, I think there was a correction that we had to expect at some point after the after the rising market we've seen for the last, you know, six plus months. So I don't think it's a surprise. Uh, I do think that part of the tapering had been priced in. So, uh, you know, actually, in some ways, I think it's it's surprising that the market isn't down even more. But in the grand scheme of things, we think that the, you know, the bear market is likely intact. And this is something something that, you know, is frankly expected a correction. Yeah, we pointed out at the top of the show, Emily, we have before, we have not had a 5% drop on the S&P 500 going back to October of last year. So about, what, nine or 10 months without not even a correction, just kind of a a minor sell-off. It looks like eh, maybe we're starting to get some of that right now. Would that be unhealthy in your view? We would consider it healthy. And I think part of what's been going on, and, and I may have mentioned this before, but you know, back in 2019, the volume of retail traders in the market was around 12%, and that more than doubled during the pandemic. So you have huge numbers of individual investors and retail investors that are, you know, quote unquote, buying the dip. So when you look at the day in June, when broad markets were down 1%, you know, you saw retail investors pile into the market. And, you know, that the money, uh, money like that that comes into the market fast is also going to be, you know, is going to to leave fast. And so I think if we had an if we had a correction that was relatively extended, you could see that what I would call hot money, um, you know, pull out of the market and lead to finally a healthy extended correction of more than five percent. Yeah, the, maybe the hot money cooling off quick. I mean, you know, first, yes. what is it? First in, first out. It sounds like that's kind that of what you're right. thinking. From a sector, yeah, from a sector perspective, though, we, we've got a story. I don't want to give too much away on NVIDIA. Their quarter stock doing pretty well this morning, even as futures are in the red. You are a big believer in semiconductors. I cover oil and gas and energy, and you're telling me I need to stop because semiconductors, they're the new oil. Yes, we Semiconductors are the new oil. And I, one of the things that we've seen, which actually concerns us as a possible long-term threat to global economic stability, 
is rising U.S.-China tensions, and that's interrelate. That is directly related to the global semiconductor shortage. And what you're seeing is a scrambling among country uh, among countries to stockpile. And the pandemic really led governments to realize that they needed self-sufficiency, not only with something like the vaccine, but with with semiconductors, which are critical to technological self-sufficiency and development. So we've seen a real scramble uh, for for various countries to be able to produce their own. And this overall, the semiconductor industry, we expect volumes, revenues to double by 2030. So it's going to be interesting to watch how that affects the sector overall. Uh, You know, the U.S. used to manufacture in terms of foundries. Back in 2000, we had about 25% of global manufacturing. That's dropped to about 12%. And when you look at high-end chips, semiconductors that are required for the most sophisticated technological processes, 90% of that is in Taiwan, which uh, I probably don't need to remind you is still not considered or recognized as a separate country by China. So those dynamics we need to watch carefully. And I think the sector in general is a good prospect for long-term growth. I think the Communist Party would uh, certainly agree with you about your comments about Taiwan as well. We're watching Taiwan Semi and, of course, the Biden administration talking about billions of dollars of investments in the American semiconductor industry. Emily Hill, Bowersock Capital Partners. Emily, thanks for kicking off the show. Big day. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Now to the latest on the tragedy unfolding in Afghanistan. President Biden now reversing course saying that American soldiers may stay in that country past the deadline to withdraw, all as there is a furious race to save lives and get the remaining Americans out of the nation. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says over 5,000 people have been evacuated so far. But the Pentagon says U.S. military forces do not have the ability to reach those beyond Kabul airport. In the meantime, the FAA has given American air carriers the okay to carry out evacuation flights out of the airport Dan Murphy has the latest on it all from the region. Brian, CNBC confirmed late yesterday with the UAE Ministry of Foreign Affairs that the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, had arrived in the Emirates. Ghani also spoke publicly for the first time using a Facebook video to deny reports that he took large sums of money with him as he departed the presidential palace and also saying his decision to flee Kabul was to avoid, quote, bloodshed. Ashraf Ghani also said he wants to return to Afghanistan soon. He also welcomed negotiations that have been ongoing between the former Afghan leaders Abdullah Abdullah and Hamid Karzai with the Taliban about a future government. Of course, what that looks like remains to be seen. Meanwhile, the situation in Kabul is still tense. Just in the past 24 hours, we understand the U.S. has been relying on the Taliban to get Americans and Afghan allies past checkpoints to reach Kabul airports so they can be evacuated. The Pentagon saying the pace of those evacuations is improving, but it is believed there are still thousands of Americans inside the country. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden now saying U.S. forces could remain in Afghanistan past his August 31st withdrawal deadline in order to get every American out of the country. But the White House is still facing intense criticism over what's being seen internationally as a chaotic and messy end to the war in Afghanistan. Brian? All right, our thanks to Dan Murphy for that report on Afghanistan. 
All right, well, we are just getting started here on a very busy Thursday. And when we come back, your morning's big money movers, including NVIDIA, showing no signs of slowing all as semiconductors still face a shortage. Plus, why a new survey shows that back to school has teachered, teachers very worried about their kids' emotional health. And later, why housing and car sales are starting to finally show some signs cooling off. Is the red-hot housing market finally going to be a little more affordable for you? We'll talk more about that and much more as we roll on. Dow Futures, they are down 364. We are back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Time now for your big money movers of the morning and a bonus five stock stories of the day instead of three. All right, here we go. Stock number one, 10 cents. Second quarter earnings jumping about 30%, topping forecasts, but revenues fell short of estimates. All this as China continues to crack down on its biggest tech players. Tencent does say it is trying to work with the government to limit kids' video game playing time. Stock off 3.5%. Stock number two, Cisco Systems. Earnings and sales came in slightly above most estimates, but shares down about 2%, as it also says supply constraints could linger the next several months. Stock number three, NVIDIA. We just talked chips with Emily Hill. Shares of NVIDIA up about 1%. They posted better than expected second quarter numbers with solid forward guidance. And finally, a tale of two different retailers that used to be one. Victoria's Secret tumbling after second quarter numbers fell well short of estimates. Online sales down 24%, stock down 8%. But Bath & Body Works, that stock up 4% after it easily beat most of these forecasts. Two companies, of course, used to be known as L Brands, and they completed a spinoff earlier this month. All right, on deck, Disney may be granting the biggest wish of all for its guests, avoiding those long, long lines. But that magic comes at a cost, paying to jump the line. Next on WEX. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Well, it is back to school time for tens of millions of students and teachers, but maybe not in the way that everybody hoped for even just a few weeks ago as COVID cases pop among the unvaccinated. Groups of teachers in places like New York are again asking for a virtual school option. All this, as a new survey shows, the teachers do remain very worried about their kids and their emotional and social well-being. Let's talk more about this with Jack Lynch, CEO of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. They have a new educator conference report out, as well as some numbers. And Jack, it's a pleasure to get you on. I wish it was under better circumstances for a lot of our kids. But looking at the results of that new report, I mean, some of the numbers are, are pretty stunning. 58% of teachers are concerned uh, that their kids will have increased social or emotional well-being issues going on into the fall. What else do you think should be some of the, the key headlines coming out of that latest report? Yeah, thank you for having me, Brian. I think, you know, the key thing as we go back uh, to the classroom is going back to the classroom. Uh, the stress and strain that students and for that matter, teachers uh, and the entire educational community has experienced are the result of a year and a half of some combination of remote learning, hybrid learning, on-site learning. And it has taken a, a social emotional t- uh, toll on, on students. And uh, 86% of, of teachers believe that we need to integrate a whole child development into the classroom, not just focus on their intellectual development, but their social development as well. And that 86 believe that we need to, 86% believe we need to incorporate social emotional learning strategies into the instruction to ensure we can get kids back on track. Of course, in the past year, as we, we all know, we had to adapt teachers' schools. Everybody had to adapt very quickly. Kids had to adapt. Uh, we had to learn how to either learn all online or some sort of a hybrid. Uh, there's, a, there's a group in New York City which is saying we need to go back to a virtual option. We don't know if other schools will, or school districts might do the same as well, Jack. Um, what did we learn from technology? And what do you think maybe even just the first few months of this school year are going to look like in some of the areas or the country's biggest school districts? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that we've learned is that uh, on average, the average student is uh, uh, five months behind in math and four months behind in reading. Uh, and, uh, And it's important the social gathering that is the classroom, returning to the classroom where a teacher is gonna conduct a whole class discussion, where students are gonna pair up to do a math problem, where a group of kids are gonna work on a science experiment together. That kind of intellectual and social, what I would call high touch development is incredibly important. And so what we've learned about technology is, you know, a year and a half ago, Uh, teachers were kind of thrown into the deep end. They went from teaching in their classroom to teaching from their kitchen table. And they went from being technology hesitant to uh, technology proficient very quickly. And so we've invested very heavily in technology infrastructure over the last year and a half. And so I think what we're entering into now is a new high-touch, high-tech era where we're combining the best of that social gathering with uh, technology that can really identify where students are on their learning journey, what they know, what they're ready to learn next. So it's, it's that kind of complementary uh, 
capability in the classroom, excuse me, along with uh, every student being outfitted with, uh, with a Chromebook yeah. or an iPhone. And, and Jack, uh, we know that the last stimulus plan allocated about $130 billion to schools and school districts. Uh, that money being paid out starts to be paid out really this year, goes through 2028 proposals. In some yeah. cases are due, I think, at the end of 2023. Either way, school districts are now thinking about how they're going to spend that money. Do you think a lot of that is going to end up going to companies like yours and technology? Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely uh, there's multiple needs out there. Uh, one is just stability of funding. And so I think overall, the American Rescue Plan in March, as you point out, Brian, uh, is $130 billion that's going to K-12 school districts. That's important. Prior to that, with uh, the SR1 and SR2 funding for K-12, uh, there was $70 billion in funding. That's important as well. So it's going to... Uh, ventilation systems, it's going to infrastructure, but it is going to bandwidth, it is going to uh, devices, as well as, uh, you know, intervention programs like ours that are going to address uh, the needs that kids have returning back to the classroom uh, with, you know, pretty significant learning loss uh, and using an AI-based yeah. adaptive programs that are going to help you know, find kids where they are and advance their learning is going to be an important part of the use of those funds. Yeah, Jack, it's not the start of the school year that many had hoped just even a few months ago, but I know everybody is doing their dong, their, you know, their best to try to, uh, to get the kids back in the classroom safely. Jack Lynch, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Brian. All right, of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Right on deck. Alleged insider trading at Netflix, what a now former employee did that caught the eye of the feds. We'll be right back. Dow Futures off 317. Big day. We're back right after this. Fed heads have stocks in the red. Futures, they're down big as concerns rise that the easy money party may come to an end sooner than some hope. Is the red-hot housing market finally cooling down? What is happening that says it may be? And have money? Jump the line. What Disney is doing to make families who pay up have a little bit more of a magical experience. It is Thursday, August 19th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome or welcome back and good Thursday morning, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us. All right, let's get right now to your Thursday money, because looking at my screens here, futures, they are down big. Dow futures off 333 points. Perhaps it is concerns over the Fed and a sooner taper, reduction of bond buying. Maybe it's new COVID fears as cases pop in D.C. and the Northeast. Maybe it's a combo or just seasonal volatility. We're going to ask John Najarian in a few minutes what he is seeing. He will be along. By the way, coming into today, a little bit of context. The S&P 500 is, at least right now, still up more than 3% over the past month. So weak couple of days, but overall, we are still higher than 30 days ago, and it's been a solid year. Also, we're going to get a look at the price of oil. It continues to fall under pressure for a sixth straight day, potentially, by the way, facing its longest losing streak since February of last year. Got to go all the way back to the earliest days of the pandemic. Crude oil here in the U.S., 
at 63 bucks, just under that at 62.94. All right, more in the markets and your money in a minute. But right now, let's get a check on some of this morning's other key headlines. Bertha is back now with those. Bertha. Hey, Brian. Wells Fargo is reversing course on its plan to end personal credit lines for its customers amid growing backlash. CNBC reporting last month that the bank had informed customers that revolving credit lines would be closed following a review, warning that could impact users' credit scores. Well, that didn't sit well with customers. Wells Fargo now says it will keep the credit lines available for those who actively use them or want to reactivate old ones, but says it will not offer the product to new customers. Meantime, the SEC has charged three former Netflix employees with insider trading. The agency says the former software engineers and two associates made over $3 million by sharing confidential information on the streaming giant's subscriber growth. It says the group allegedly made trades ahead of a number of the company's earnings announcements between 2016 and 2019. And Disney unveiling a new app and aimed at easing the pain of planning a trip to its U.S. theme parks. Genie will allow visitors to schedule restaurant reservations, order food, pay for merchandise credits, and see current and forecasted wait times for attractions. You'll also be able to skip the line for rides, but like anything good in life, that will cost you. The paid version of the app, which replaces the FastPass offering, will charge between $15 and $20 a day for the feature. Of course, Brian, that's on top of the $100 plus ticket you're paying for your entry. It's not cheap to experience the and And yeah, pictures with the princesses and the giant turkey legs oh, or whatever they are. I mean, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's something. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. Pay up, jump the line. All right, now let's talk about real estate because after a more than a year of basically, I mean, let's be honest, panic buying in certain parts of the country, there are some signs that housing demand may finally be cooling off. Or maybe there's a little more to the story than we think. Let's get now some insight with Odetta Cushy, Deputy Chief Economist at First American Financial. Odetta, welcome to the program. Are you seeing any signs of any kind of a cooling or is it more just, well, there's no houses to buy, so maybe that kind of skews the numbers? So we are seeing some signs of softening in the housing market, but context is important here. You're seeing purchase mortgage applications you know, decline on a week-over-week basis and certainly lower than one year ago. And you are starting to see inventory start to rise, which, which is good news. But with that said, inventory is rising from a historical low. So inventory is still very, very low. And purchase applications, while they're lower than one year ago, which is when we saw all of that pent-up demand flood the market, they're still at about 20 2019 levels, which is our second best year in a decade. So we're still very much in a seller's market, but we are seeing some early signs of softening. But I think, Odetta, you get my point about inventories. I mean, it seems like the only houses that are for sale for very long are the homes. You know, it's, it's a lime green with no windows, super postmodern <laughs> brutalist. You know, it's, or it's got some issue to it. Uh, inventories have been just absolutely terrible. 
Absolutely. Inventories are still very low. You're still seeing bidding wars. Again, still very much a seller's market. And, you know, this this lack of inventory is, is especially an issue at that starter home, lower price tier segment. So oftentimes where that first time home buyer is looking to buy. So very much still in a low inventory environment. You know, if you if you owned a home for years, if you're older and, you, you know, you have equity, you sell your house, maybe you can buy a house someplace cheaper for all cash. If you're a new buyer coming in with no equity, I, I mean, hope mom and dad or grandma and grandpa left you some cash because you've got to put down a lot of money. What are you seeing from average loan sizes? Are we seeing more all cash buyers or people, I mean, literally mortgaging it at all? So average loan sizes still remain near historic highs. And to your point about that first time home buyer, you know, they don't have the equity from the sale of an existing home to bring to the closing table as an existing homeowner would. And so, you know, this this market is especially challenging for that first time home buyer. We have seen growing affordability challenges as nominal house prices reach double digits. And so, you know, we, we may start to see some pullback from that buyer on the margin, which will, you know, hopefully result and some moderation of home prices, fewer bidding wars, um, and, and we'll start to maybe see that, that nominal house price growth start to slow. Have you been shocked at the housing market the last year? That, I mean, we didn't know what to expect going into a pandemic. Nobody did. And, and everyone thought, everyone just kind of sit on their hand. I'm not sure anybody predicted what we have seen the last 15 months in housing. Maybe you did. Yeah, so you know, this was this was a service sector recession, so really disproportionately hurting lower income renters, and so potential home buyers and homeowners uh, were a little bit more protected from this kind of services recession. And so those would be buyers actually, you know, they they saved some money, and then of course we have this longer run demographic demand of millennials aging into their prime home buying years, and then of course mortgage rates hit record lows. So it was kind of a uh, you know, this this perfect storm um, that resulted in in all of this pent up demand flooding the market. Um, and so some of that, you know, some of that has gone away and we're starting to normalize. But there's still plenty of demand for homes um, today. Again, this demographic demand rates still remain near historic lows. Um, it's really about the lack of supply to meet that demand. But there is some homes, Odetta. I put a picture up my social media. Maybe this is for you. I was just in Aspen at a conference, a five-bedroom, 5,000-square-foot house. So big house, five bedrooms, $13.5 million. Is that your place? Perfectly priced, absolutely. (laughs) I figured it out. If you put 20% down, the monthly mortgage was $51,000 a month. Oh. I guess I'll ski elsewhere. Odetta Kushi, First American Financial. Odetta, good to have you on the program. Thank you very much. Thanks. It was like two two million a bedroom plus like a, I guess it has a, I assume it has a kitchen and I don't know, 13.5 million. All right. Coming up, COVID, of course, shedding more light on the shortcomings in the global supply chain. We're going to have more details on how growing climate change threats could make that problem even worse. Dow Futures down over 300. Ten-year yields at 1.2. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Well, one of the biggest issues that has popped up, among many others, in the pandemic 
has been all the supply chain disruptions for much of the global economy. But experts say that could be a drop in the bucket compared to supply chain disruptions that could happen and are already taking place because of climate change. Diana Olick is here with more in her continuing series on climate consequences. Wildfires in the American West, flooding in Europe, and drought in South America are all disrupting supplies of everything from lumber to chocolate, even to sushi rice. Whether you're in the agricultural sector or the forestry sector or, or in the tech sector, uh, there is really no particular sector that is immune from climate change. Witness how the increase in named storms over just the past three years has extended the areas of disruption dramatically. While this hurricane season is just getting started, there are already climate-related disruptions. For example, lumber. Canada-based Canfor Corporation just announced that the western wildfires are significantly impacting the supply chain and our ability to transport product to market. As a result, we are implementing short-term production curtailments at our Canadian sawmills. Prolonged drought in Brazil has caused the price of coffee to nearly double in the last year. And sushi rice. Two-thirds of America's is grown in California, which is now having water issues due both to drought and the wildfires. Workplace disruptions caused by climate change could lead to more than $2 trillion in productivity losses by 2030, according to a recent report from the United Nations Development Program. That, experts say, is why businesses need to be proactive. And so that means being really innovative and creative and doing um, a lot of supplier engagement that maybe you haven't done before as a company. Students at MIT recently did a study on the effects of climate change on mint for Colgate Palmolive and recommended the company engage in risk mitigation beyond its current five-year horizon, moving to a 20-year plan. Another example, Apple has pledged to cut emissions from its supply chain to net zero by 2030. This means they're taking a hard look at all their supply chain partners, trying to find ways to cut the emissions that they generate. But in doing so, they're also dramatically lowering their risk to disruptions in the energy supply, for example. Now, right now, the top strategies to mitigate supply chain risk are bridging and buffering. That is bridging the gap with suppliers to make sure communication is strong during a climate crisis and then buffering current supplies, which means having some amount of products in reserve as a buffer and also having backup suppliers should the main ones fail. Brian. OK, buffering, a, a, a fancy word, but it, it seems like buffering might mean that there's going to be some big pop in places to store stuff that may not necessarily be at risk for certain things that you talked about from the climate. There's got to be a is it a, is it a where we just talked about housing your world. Is it a warehouse boom? Well, I hate to say I'm going to bring it back to real estate again. Warehousing is also my world in commercial real estate. And I always call it the least sexy sector in real estate. But really, we saw a huge boom in warehousing because of the uh, changeover to tech e-commerce. Now we could see the same thing, even more demand for warehousing because of climate change as companies look to store more of their products. Of course, you can't do it with all products, of course. Some have a shelf life. But we could see that starting to happen. Absolutely. Always real estate. Let me talk about not sexy. Didn't Shakespeare talk about it? My eyes have longed to see a warehouse as sexy as the... I think that was Shakespeare. Was that sex? Shakespeare? I don't know. Warehouses are cool. Just sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I have no future as a poet. Diana Olick, an important story there, and a warehouse poop. Can't go anywhere without seeing a new warehouse being built on the side of a highway somewhere. Diana, thank you very much. All right, on deck, futures. They are tumbling down more than 300 on the Dow. Is it all, or now 244, excuse me, is it all the Fed or something else? John Jerrion is here, his insight. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It is time for a little lesson in sectornomics. And today, we are diving into one group that got a lot of love last year, utilities. One might say they were powerful in 2020, but now investors seem a little more unsure. So let's bring in the man himself, Dom Chu, with a look at some of the winners and maybe losers and where they could be headed in a group that was a hot spot for debate last year. Dom, good morning. So as the pandemic recovery began, we started to see a little bit more of a shift away from those utility stocks because people were so bullish on the economy. Now, in the month-to-date period so far that we've seen in August with more downside volatility, guess which sector has been the top performer? That's right, it's utilities, up about 4% on just a month-to-date basis as we've seen the markets kind of show a little bit more faltering here. If you take a look at the overall picture, though, versus the S&P 500 on this year-to-date period, it's been an underperformer this year as more attention has turned to economically sensitive parts of the market that could benefit as the COVID recovery hopefully takes shape. Now, if you take a look at the performance and what's been driving much of that action so far in that particular trade for utilities, you look at the utilities in the top ones, the gainers in 2021, First Energy, Evergy, Evergy, Centerpoint Energy, Aligned Energy, and American Water, all up between 17 and 25%, but all of them beating the market, by the way. So those are the hot spots with regard to what's been driving the utility sector. Now take a look for what has been perhaps lagging overall. Some of these stocks within utilities have become more of a value trade. Edison International, Pinnacle West, AES, PPL, and Dominion have been the real laggards. And by the way, Edison International is the only stock within that entire sector, Brian, that's negative on that year-to-date basis so far. Still, though, with utilities, it has become a diminished importance to the overall market because the overall market cap of the sector, Brian, is small. So it's one of the smallest sectors in the S&P. I'll send things back over to you. Dominic Chu, Sectornomics, looking at utilities. Dom, thank you very much. Time now for today's RBI, and today it's on used car prices, and maybe, just maybe, a touch of good news for anybody out there looking to buy a vehicle, because if you have been, you know that prices are off the charts high, and really any car that, you know, hasn't been in a flood, wrecked, or smashed by Godzilla sells fast, but maybe that is starting to change. The Mannheim Used Vehicle Index, which tracks car prices at wholesale auctions, actually fell in the first half of this month. Look at that. The far right, way at the top, yet only dropped 0.8%, but it did drop. So a small turn lower, and maybe we'll see, shows the market is finally cooling off a bit. Good news. That is, unless you're in the market for a van, because man, there's a lot of fans of vans. Their prices are up 25% year over year. Far more than any other type of car, especially small cars. Look at that, compacts. Nobody wants them. Maybe this is the Amazon effect. People buying vans to start their own delivery companies, or maybe it's people simply 
going glamping in some new sprinter van or a combo. Who knows? We'll call that a mystery machine. But used car prices are finally, maybe, starting to roll over. So maybe hold out just a bit. Hopefully, random, but interesting. Now let's welcome in a guest who may or may not have owned a van back at Central High School in Minneapolis. Hanging out with Prince, by the way. That is Market Rebellion co-founder. Yeah. Yeah, come on, John. Market Rebellion co-founder and oh, CNBC yeah. contributor, John Nigerian. John, good to have you back on. I'd like to talk about the days of Purple Rain, but i got to talk about futures down 232. Is this all the Fed or something else? Um, I think it's much more than the Fed, Brian. Um, I think right now, yeah. uh, people, you know, over the weekend, obviously, we were all horrified by the, the scenes from Afghanistan. And horrified is never really a good thing in stock market. Um, so I think a lot of confidence sort of ebbed. Uh, in particular, we were thinking, Brian, that we'd have that hand. In addition to the Fed, we'd have the hand of perhaps $3.4 trillion in that Reconciliation Act, some of which would be, uh, you know, rebuilding and so forth. Uh, and you're seeing now things like iron ore prices just plummeting. China not, uh, you know, as nearly as bullish and as accumulative of, of that commodity. And I think a lot of this is basically people haircutting that uh, bill. And they're saying, well, yeah. you know, if, if confidence in the president has ebbed, um, we are not going to see a $3.4 trillion bill. We may not even see a $1.5 trillion reconciliation bill because that's such a razor-thin margin in the House and Senate. So uh, right now, Brian, I think uh, the VIX is up another 35% today. Yep. That's telling you uh, a lot about how people feel about the market. I guess you read my mind, John, because I was going to ask you about the VIX, because, again, I know the Fed's going to get all the attention and I'm not trying to throw water on any cover. I get it. But the VIX doesn't pop 20 percent because the Fed is talking about a taper, because if you if you don't know what the Fed is going to do by now, considering you got 16 people a day talking from the Fed every single day, uh, the VIX is up and the market is down, not because the Fed. I totally agree. Yep, and uh, it, it's up 42%, the VIX was, through yesterday, just since last Friday, Brian. It was 15.19, a reading of 15.19. Um, it traded over 20 yesterday. It's over 23 today. That's an additional 35% jump overnight. So that's letting you know that, uh, and that's not, as you say, there was nothing surprising out of the Fed uh, yesterday. This is all about uh, the potential for that infrastructure bill, um, being in peril, as well as people thinking, well, you know, we're already hearing criticism of leadership uh, here about Afghanistan and what it might mean for partnerships around the world. That's playing into investor sentiment and in particular, I'd say, institutional investor sentiment. A lot of block trading um, to the yeah. downside right now. And we're seeing oil come down as well. Again, not Fed related as well. Very quickly, John, before we let you go, uh, anything you're seeing mm-hmm. on the on the upside, any positives, I- any opportunity you can throw out there for us? Well, um, they're continuing basically, Brian, to focus in on um, some of the healthcare plays, and that's, I guess, uh, noteworthy only because of the additional, uh, perhaps, jabs that might be going out from Pfizer and Moderna. 
John and Jaron, really appreciate your insights, certainly with an important take, looking at the VIX, the volatility index. John, real pleasure to have you on Worldwide Exchange, my friend. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that does it for us here on a Thursday. Worldwide Exchange stock futures, they're down. They've come back a bit, off 200, still down a bit. We will see you tomorrow with our exclusive insider buying segment. Do it every Friday. We'll see you then. Have a great day. Squawk is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.